Now, uh, before I begin, just want to share with you that uh, we had a members meeting. Uh, what night was it? Thursday night? Tuesday night, we had our second members membership meeting. Uh, decided on a great number of good claims for next year, 2014. But uh, one decision which we made, which I feel was really very good, is that um, we should all learn to see that we're doing church not so much at 10 o'clock, but at 9 o'clock. So we should learn to reorientate our mind to see ourselves as starting church at 9 a.m. That is coming for an hour of prayer before an hour of worship. And uh, so good to see so many of you here this morning coming for prayer. So let me encourage you, if uh, you want to be a part of our journey to see God work in here in our city, there's nothing like prayer, nothing like turning this house into a house of prayer. So come, please, come. Regardless whether you're a member of this church or not, come. If your heart is in what we do, come and join us for an hour of prayer uh, before an hour of worship. So come at 9 a.m. Uh, that would be great. Tremendous to see God work in our midst. We were reminded this morning from James chapter 5 that Elijah was just a person like you and I. Nothing special about him. It's good that scripture purposefully describes him as someone who's just exactly like you and I, but because he prayed, stuff happened. So it's a reminder that we need to pray. Do that. Now, uh, I'd like for us this morning, our uh, second Sunday of the Advent. Last Sunday we looked at which figure? John the Baptist. We're going to look at his father. Today we're going to look at another figure that's around the story of the Advent. I should like for us so much to turn to Luke chapter 1. If you would please turn to Luke chapter 1 with me. Reading from verse 5. To 25. Luke 1, 5 to 25, and then 57 to 66. Okay, let's read from Luke 1, 5 to 25. In the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time of the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been answered. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, will bear you a son, and, and you are to give him the name John. 
he will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of God. He is never to take wine or, or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will bring back, he will, will, will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit of, and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak. They realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he, had, he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. These days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Verse 57 to 66. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No. He is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one amongst your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were all filled with awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was upon him. Truly, this is the word of God. Shall we pray? Father, we ask you, give us attentive hearts for the next half an hour or so. Father, may we hear what it is that you would speak to us from this word, that we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember we spoke last week of the fact that uh, between the last prophet in the Old Testament and John the Baptist, the first prophet of the New Testament, there was this period of 400 years in which God stopped speaking. You remember that? I made that quite plain what is called the 400 silent years between the two testaments or between the two covenants. And the time of the 400 silent years was drawing to a close and God is about to speak again. 
But until then, there was this group of people called the quiet in the land. They were waiting patiently, faithfully for God to come through the clouds, so to speak. And uh, they were called the quiet in the land. And they were waiting. And amongst this group of people were these two, Zechariah, an old man, and his wife, Elizabeth. But they had no child, like Sarah, like Rebecca. Rebecca, like Rachel, like Hannah, before her, Elizabeth was barren. And in the old days, this was looked upon as, as a reproach. And uh, people who were childless spent grievous years suffering the mockery and the rebuke of people around them. And they prayed for a son, and they prayed long years for a son. And one day, Zechariah was given to many priests. This was a once-a-lifetime opportunity. Not every priest get a chance to do this. We have been told that there were priests who never get this chance, never live to see the day when they would be picked to go into the holy place, which divide the holy place from the holy of holies, and there just for a short period of time to light the incense and to pray for the people. And the Lord fell on Zechariah. Many his day, he'd been waiting his whole life for this opportunity. and. Uh, so he was praying, and while he was praying, there was this great crowd of people waiting outside. And uh, they would see the smoke of the incense rising from the altar, and they would fall prostrate on the ground, prostrate on, prostrate on, the, prostrate on the ground, and they would pray. They would pray. And at that moment, everyone would be completely silent. Now that's the holiest of the moment in, in, in the life of a given year of the people of Israel. And so he was given this chance to pray. And at that moment, he, was, he came as close to the presence of God as anyone could ever come to the presence of God. It was a holy moment. Now, it was at that moment that Zechariah sees on the right side, and there is the side of honor, there's the side of the golden altar. He sees an angel. And he was totally petrified. He was completely surprised and, and was shocked. And he, he, because as a priest, he knew that he would be struck dead. Because he, he knew he was a sinful man. Now, isn't it strange? When you come to think about it, this man had been waiting his whole life to serve God in that way. And yet when God showed up, he couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. Now, that, that, that's quite a sobering thought, really. Could it be that all of us We've been worshipping God, we've been calling out to God, some of us have been praying to God. We're coming here Sunday after Sunday. I wonder if God should show up in some manifest way that He normally shows up. We know that He shows up here every Sunday, we know that. But if He should choose to show up in a way that is very special and His presence is felt by all of us, would we be surprised that he shows up? It's a paradox, isn't it? We come here to meet with God, and yet when he shows up, we don't know what to do with him. And this man is a priest. He's been engaging in his priestly ritual year after year after year, and this scares me to death as a pastor. Could I, like Zechariah, be doing this as a ritual? Sunday after Sunday, I come up here, I speak to you for half an hour, someone stands up here, leads you in singing. But we've really lost it. So much so that when God shows up, 
who couldn't believe that he should show up. It's ridiculous, isn't it? It's a paradox. When God shows up, we don't quite believe that he should show up. So what are we here then? It's a sobering thought, that one, that we need to think about a little. Now back to our story. The angel says to Zechariah, don't be afraid. Your prayer has been answered now. This is very interesting. Your prayers has been answered, he says, and your wife Elizabeth will give you a child and you shall name him John. A great privilege really has been conferred to him because John will be the last of the prophets to usher in the Messiah. You know, as I've said, for long years these people have waited and, and, and now God says you'll be granted this privilege within your very family will come the one who will speak and who will usher in the Messiah. And yet he couldn't believe. He begins to doubt God. And what seems to be happening? This is rather incongruous. Zechariah has been a long-standing priest for so many years. He's been a godly man. The Word of God describes him as godly and righteous. And yet he doubts God. Angel appears to him and instead of jumping up and down with joy, he begins to doubt God. Now what is even more puzzling is the fact that his name is Zechariah, which means the Lord has remembered. With a name like that, the Lord has remembered. Why should you be so surprised that the Lord remembers you? And it's interesting that his wife's name, Elizabeth, means the oath of God. Now with a name like that, the oath of God, you might like to name your daughter Elizabeth. What a good name. The oath of God, meaning God takes an oath. And when God takes an oath, he will surely fulfill what he says. Surely he will. What a good name to remember, the oath of God. With names like that, and yet they couldn't believe that God had spoken. So, why? Why was he so doubtful? Surely as a priest, he would have remembered that Sarah was barren, and God gave her Isaac. Surely as a priest, he would have remembered that Hannah was barren, and God gave her Samuel. Now, it is at this point that the angel says something rather intriguing. Angels never ever declare their name. This is almost the first time an angel declares his name. He says, I am Gabriel. My name is Gabriel. As if to say, God has shown himself, because that's the meaning of that name, Gabriel. God has shown himself. So they've got three pieces of evidence that God has shown himself. His name, his wife's name, and the name of the angel Gabriel, they all say the same thing. God has shown himself. Verse 19, I stand in the presence of God always. And the angel Gabriel says to Zechariah, you should have been the most happiest man, but instead you are demanding a sign. Well, if you want a sign, a sign will be given to you. I will struck you dumb. You will not be able to speak until your child comes out from your wife's womb. Now, striking him dumb is perhaps the most merciful thing that God can do to him. It mercifully prevents him from speaking further. Because he may indulge in more sin if he speaks further. And it gives him space, it gives him time to learn to believe again. 
there is reason why some Catholics would go for long months and not speak, taking the vow of silence. We don't do that as Protestants. We don't do that. There might be some value. Thomas Merton tells us that it is when he took the vow of silence that it drew, it drew him much closer to God. Because when you choose not to speak, you be more contemplative, you be more reflective of what God may be doing in your life. So striking him dumb was perhaps the most merciful act God could have done to him. Now, let's take a look at Zechariah. Let's see what's happening here. He's been described as a righteous man, but I like the way the Bible describes him. It says, he is righteous in the sight of God. Meaning his righteousness is so far removed from that of the righteousness of the Pharisees. Because the righteousness of the Pharisees was something worn on the outside. But the Bible took great care to say his righteousness is a righteousness in the sight of God. So this man is truly righteous. Truly, truly righteous. A godly man. But right here we see here a godly man like him doubting God. I want to give you a hope here, a note of hope. Because if you find yourself doubting, just remember that if Zechariah, a righteous man, could doubt God, you and I can easily fall prey to doubt as well. Sarah, Sarah doubted God, remember that? And she heard the angel saying to her husband, Abraham, that you're going to have a son. Sarah doubted God. John the Baptist, this man's own son, doubted God. Remember when he was in prison, pining away, he says, are you the one or shall we look for another? So John the Baptist too doubted God. Let's explore this matter of doubt a little. From where does doubt come? Why do Christians sometimes doubt? We doubt not because of the lack of evidence. It is never the lack of evidence that causes us to doubt. We doubt because our hearts are sinful. People will often tell you, well, if God shows up, I will believe. Now, don't ever believe them. Don't ever believe anyone who says to you, well, if God shows up, I will believe. God shows up right now and this man does not believe. To get that? There are people for whom God shows up and they will still not believe. Remember the man who was tormented in hell, in Hades, that rich man. He pleaded with Abraham to send someone to warn his brothers so that they would not end up in this burning pit like he's ending up with. Remember what Abraham says to the rich man? Abraham says, your brother had Moses and the prophets. And then what did, what did the rich man say to Abraham? The rich man says, no, 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 Father Abraham, but if someone goes from the dead, they will repent. Now, Abraham's reply to this rich man in Hades is classic. Abraham says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Imagine that. Even if someone rises from the dead, they will not believe. So I think you and I have got to come to terms with the fact that people doubt God not because of a lack of evidence. We doubt God not because we don't have the evidence. We doubt God because our hearts are sinful. That's the bottom line. But there is a second reason, I believe, for why we doubt God. 
and that's the reason we want to explore now. And that is this. Have you ever been to the X-ray department in the hospital? I have been a number of times, and I've taken Gloria there a number of times, but let's talk about my own experience. They put you in a cubicle, after calling out your name, they put you in a little cubicle, four by four, I think, little small space, and you're asked to change there, and they give you a ridiculous piece of fabric, not even a gown. You're not sure what to do with it. It's just pieces of strings all over, and you're supposed to tie it back, you know, and you know for sure when you walk out of that place, you'll be an embarrassment. You'll be such an embarrassment. It hardly covers you. And so you sit there, waiting to be called, and it looks like eternity. You're sitting there and you're not called. You're waiting, you're waiting. And then suddenly you look up and you see a little sign on the wall. It says, if you have waited for more than 30 minutes, please ring this bell here. Now, I've become very reflective of that sign because I've seen it many, many times sitting there in that cubicle. That sign says something to me. That sign tells me that even nurses know that you could have been forgotten. But God does not know. Now, I'm, not indulging, I'm not indulging the blasphemy here. But it seems to me many times that even nurses know that you could be forgotten. But it seems that God, does even, God doesn't even know that you could be forgotten because God sometimes puts us in those cubicles of our lives. And we've been waiting, we've been waiting, waiting, and still waiting. And after all these years, we're still waiting. He doesn't seem to know that we have been forgotten. It looks to me that God does not have a sign like that, that even nurses have. You've been going through long years of unanswered prayer. You've been drawn out, you've been stretched out, you can't take it anymore. You've been waited far too long, you feel. There is a sense in which God keeps us waiting. We go through some long crisis, some need for guidance, a loss, a bereavement, an illness. We long for a job. We long for a relationship. We're disappointed, we pleaded with him, we begged with him, we cry, we weep, we beat our breasts, even sometimes we cry out, how long, oh Lord, how long, but not a word is spoken. Have you not experienced this? I have experienced this, I'm sure you have experienced this. You call out and call out, and it's not there, it doesn't seem to be there. And the devil taunts us, and the devil says, where now is your God? Where is the promise of his coming? The psalmist understood this. Because the psalmist waited for God and this is what he says, Why do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? My soul thirsts for God. Where can I go to meet my God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, Where is your God? And I'm so glad that scripture records for us that experience in the desert when there is no water, when there is no food in the wilderness, when the wineskin run out, when throats are parched and stomachs growl, the Israelites shook their clenched fists at God and demanded that God be put on trial. Exodus 17, 1-7. 
Is it any wonder that why God is sometimes called the God who hides himself? Isaiah 45, 15. What a harrowing thing it is, this muffling of God, this, this silence of God. I believe this is the reason why many people doubt God. It's because he keeps quiet. He does not answer prayers. I believe this is the reason why Zechariah stopped praying. I believe Zechariah stopped praying years and years and years before the angel appeared. You know, Zechariah, Zechariah may have put it very diplomatically. He might say, I'm an old man now and my wife is old. But what he's really saying is, I've given up. I've given up praying for a long time now. You know, Zechariah has outlived his prayer for a son. He's long retracted his prayer. He has for a thousand times excused the God of the hero of prayer for not hearing his prayers. And he has reconciled himself to never ever getting an answer from God. So he and his wife Elizabeth, perhaps they, you know, perhaps one night without talking about it, they both, they both settled in their hearts that they're never going to pray again for a child. And so they, perhaps they have swallowed in their disappointment and they don't pray anymore. The big question is why does God sometimes not answer our prayers? I have two answers. First, I need to affirm as a minister of God, as a minister of the Word, let me say without a tinge of doubt at all, that just because God does not answer your prayers now, no matter how long it takes, does not necessarily mean that God does not answer prayers, or does not mean that He will not answer your prayer. If you read Zechariah, if you read the words of the angel very carefully, you will say, you will see that the angel says, "Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard." But the tense of the verb "heard" literally means many years back in time, and that gives me great hope. In fact, it tells me that the very first time Elizabeth and Zechariah prayed, God had already heard. So they were praying for many, many years, but the very first time they prayed, God already heard. That's the power of that Greek verse there, heard. It means having been heard the very first time it was spoken. So first, God, God's delay does not necessarily mean that He will not hear your prayers. Second, when God seems to delay your prayers, and this gives me great hope, it could be that God wants to give you something more than what you're praying for. Now please, if you go back with nothing this morning, go back with this. If God delays your prayers, it could well mean that He's not going to give you what you want, but He's going to give you something far better than what you are asking. Now did you not get this? What if, what if God answered Zechariah's prayer the minute he prayed? for a son, and God gave an, an ordinary son, an ordinary Jewish boy. It would be just that. He would just get an ordinary Jewish boy. But because he waited, and because God made him wait, he got the greatest prophet that ever lived. The forerunner of the Messiah 
What a tremendous reward for years of waiting. He gets to be the father of John the Baptist. So be very careful when you groan and mourn about God not answering your prayers. It could well be that God is delaying you because he has something else for you. In this case, not just an ordinary boy, but John the Baptist. The same with Hannah. Hannah requested for long years for a child and God delayed her prayer. Finally, when God gave Hannah an answer to her prayers, God gave her Samuel, the one called of God. The same with Manoah's wife, who prayed for long years. We do not know her name, we just know her as Manoah's wife. And yet when finally God gave her a son, God gave her Samson. See, the reason God sometimes makes you wait for long years is because he has something else that he wants to give to you. Let God answer your prayer in his own time, in his own way. God always shows up on time. Even though he appears late, he's never late. He always shows up on time. It's just that your time is not his time. One of the most important calls in the Bible is the call for us to wait on God. It's one of the most difficult demands of the Bible that we wait on God. People who are able to go on waiting on God understand what it means to wait on God. People who have had long years to wait on God have finally understood that, oh, I see, I am to wait on God, for God, not for the goodies that I'm hoping to get from Him. You see the difference? Perhaps God is making some of you wait for long years is because He wants you to finally come around to seeing that you're not supposed to wait on me for stuff. You're supposed to wait on me for me. I'll give you an example. If you suddenly became very rich, if tomorrow morning you walk to your mailbox, you open the letter, and it says, a long forgotten uncle has left behind for you a very rich legacy, $3 million. All of a sudden, just opening that letter, walking to the mailbox, your life immediately turns around. And you know something? You find friends are more frequenting, frequenting your house than they've ever come around before. And more people are coming around to you. And one person even proposed to you that you marry her. And she marries you and you marry her. And then, over the last 7, 10, 12 years, because of misjudgment of, of investment, you came to lose everything. And slowly you find every single one of them has stopped coming to your house. And even that person who married you, she's now left, she's gone. And you find gradually that you're all alone by yourself. And you know something? All of a sudden you realize that all these people were there, not for you, but for what you have. And you feel used, you feel used, you feel cheated. But you know something? This is what we do to God. Every day, every week, every month. This is what we do to God. We go to Him for something. When we've got those things, we're glad. 
But when those things are in short supply, we turn away, we walk away. What does that make him feel? We've come to treat God as, as a dispenser of, 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 of goodies. We've come to him only because of what we can get out of him. Isn't that what the devil says to Job? He says to God, he says, Job is only righteous for what he gets from you. But just afflict him and you will know where his heart stands. A casual reading of the Bible will tell you that God wants us to wait for him, for him alone, not for what we can get out of him. And that means loving him even when there is nothing to be gotten out of him. Loving him even when he chooses to afflict you, even like what he did to Job. Loving him even when there is no fruit in your ministry, like Jeremiah. Loving him when he makes you sit on the sidelines for 40 years, like what he did to Moses. Loving him even though he takes the love of your life away, like what he did to Van Hafner, the Baptist preacher, who said, by the way, it was he who tells us that there is a forgotten beatitude. Blessed is he who does not take offense. By the way, I do my work. Did you not know that? We know all the beatitudes very well. Blessed are those who are merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. But Vance Hafner comes along and he says, tucked away in Matthew, there is a forgotten beatitude. And that's what the word was spoken to John the Baptist. Blessed is he who does not take offense at how I run my business. You know something, it is only in times of deep, serious trouble that you and I get the opportunity to know if we truly are waiting on God or are we truly waiting only for what He gives us. So if you are suffering right now, if things are not going well in your life right now, it is really a very good opportunity for God to test you whether you're loving God for who He is or whether you're loving God for what you can get out of Him. Now I've said this zillions of times before from this pulpit. The brilliance of Job does not lie in his ability to argue with God. The brilliance of Job lies in his ability to not lose grip on God even though when everything is stripped away from him. It was Job who says, even if he slays me, Yet will I trust him. One day if I could say that when, when I'm pushed really to the, to the corner, when everything in my own life is stripped away from me, I wonder whether I could say like Job, even if he slays me, yet will I trust him. I pray that I would, and I pray that you would. And when you come to the end of the book of Job, and when you come to the end of the book of Jeremiah, and when you come to the end of the book of Habakkuk, you will find that all of them remained faithful, even though every single one of them had everything stripped away from them. So when you're waiting, as you may now be, and if things are not happening well in your life right now, let me encourage you, don't doubt God. Go on waiting, because it could be something else that He wants to give to you. I want to leave the great news to the end. Or rather, I have left the greatest news to the end, and that is this. The great news is, even though you may doubt God, even though you may be disappointed with Him, but if you repent 
Put your hope in him again. He will restore you. Take it from this man, Zechariah. He came around to seeing his wife give birth to a son. And he was obedient in the end. How do we know that he was obedient? Because he obediently named this child John by scribbling on the tablet. His name shall be called John. That incident tells us that in the end, he came around to believing God. And after this, we hear nothing of Zechariah anymore. But what a life. What a life of righteousness. Unbelief, yes. Doubt, yes. But ultimately, he found his footing again. And the scripture's verdict of him is that he is a very righteous man. The lesson for you and I is very clear. Don't despair, even though some of you have been waiting for a long, long time now. Why? Because ultimately, God will be there for you. Do you hear that? Ultimately, God will be there. Even though he seems to be absent, he will be there. Some of us love reading the books of Henry Nguyen, Henry Nguyen. In his last book that he wrote before his death, it's called The Sabbatical Journey, he wrote about some of his closest friends in his life. They were trapeze artists. They were trapeze artists in the circus called the Flying Rodels. Now, they told Nguyen something which he cherished very much. They would come to Henry and they would tell him that as trapeze artists, there are two groups of people. There are those who are called the catchers and there are those who are called the flyers. The catcher's job is to fly high in the trapeze in the air. Their only job and they are dedicated to that. They do nothing but that and that is to catch. That's their job. The job is to catch. That's why they're called catchers. On the other side of the trapeze artist's skill was a group called the flyers. The flyer's job is to swing on the trapeze bar, swing until the right moment, you let go the bar, you put all your hands as far forward as you could because you're a flyer. And the flyer's job is just to fly. Just keep flying. Do nothing but fly. Believing that when the time comes, the catcher will catch him. What if the flyer doesn't wait? What if the flyer having flown in the air for what he thinks to be an, an unending, unending period of time begins to flay around, begins to try to catch the catcher? Disastrous consequences, disastrous. Because both guys flailing their arms here and there, nobody does any catching at all. He'll die. His job is to simply put out his hand with the belief that the catcher will catch him and the catcher catches him all the time. hundred times out of hundred times the catcher catches because he's so good at catching. But he can only catch if you wait for him to catch. Now I thought that's such a good illustration of waiting on God. Some of you may have given up. I pray not. But you, if you have, you are really playing around now and the consequence is disastrous. If not today, tomorrow. It will be disastrous for you. Please, don't play around. Put those two hands up there. Wait for the catcher. He will catch you. 
you will. Shall we pray? Father, Zechariah tells us that he lost his footing. We do not know about Elizabeth, but Zechariah lost his footing and God had to strike him down. Some of us may be losing our footing. Some of us have been playing arms and we're catching nothing. It would only be disastrous for us. Father, help us to keep our arms right up there. Because you've called us to be flyers. And you are the catcher. You will catch us. You will. If not today, tomorrow. And help us to keep on waiting and praying. Give us faith. Help us not to have rebellious hearts, to run away from you, to be cynical about you, to be jaded about you. Protect our hearts against this, Father. The enemy would have us jaded. But Father, there's no knowledge, there's no future in being jaded. Give us faith. Give us renewed and refreshed hearts to believe again, we ask.